Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go to Jeremiah 29. That's where we're heading today. Uh, I like to let you know where we're heading a couple of times uh, uh, well in advance. So just so you know that the things that I say, our sermon today, will draw its authority and its power from that. I'd much rather you leave here with Jeremiah 29 on your brain today than something that I say. All right? So that's where we're going to go and get our thrust and power from Jeremiah 29 today. So we're in the series called Fight. And uh, when Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he came uh, that we may have life, right? Now, at that moment, um, what Jesus is telling us that he didn't just die on a cross so that we could get life later. He meant that we could get life now and get it abundantly, right? And one of the most grievous errors we can make as evangelical Christians is when we reduce surrendering and believing upon Jesus as simply a means to get to a destination later. Like you might have grown up in a church hearing the idea that if you believe upon Jesus, then you can go to heaven. Or if you don't believe upon Jesus, you'll go to hell. Almost making the point of following Jesus as a means to get to a destination later. And although there's a truth in that, yes, it's a half-truth. Following Jesus means that you get life quantitative forever and ever and ever with God, but his promise of abundant life is a qualitative life right now. We don't just follow Jesus and believe in Jesus to get to God later, but to get him right here in the now. This is what abundant life is. But this life that John 10.10, Jesus says, It's going to be a fight for us. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easy for us. We will have to dig in and fight for this good, abundant life that Jesus is promising us. We know that this is a fight. We've been talking a lot about that as a church and fighting for this series. Fighting for good things, but also fighting for the right things. We as Christians can often fight for the wrong things instead of fighting for the good things. So we're calling you to fight. Week one, we kicked off the, uh, the series by challenging you uh, to fight for the gospel to rule and reign in your heart. For it to be the most supreme pleasure in your entire life that the gospel would take such a root here that you literally would put on these gospel glasses and see everything in your life through the gospel. Without the gospel ruling and reigning in my heart, your heart, we will not be able to be effective soldiers for God's army in the fight in our homes and in our lives and our marriages and our parenting. We won't be able to fight and do any of those things for good if the gospel is not ruling in our hearts. And uh, one of the things that the Lord pressed upon me that I, I, this idea about the gospel just being so present in our life and that we need to see all of life through the lenses of the gospel is I've ordered a book. Um, it's in the, in the cafe uh, today. It might be there for a few weeks, but it's a book called New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. And it is a daily gospel devotional. And the reason you need to read the gospel every day is because we forget the gospel every single day. Um, And it is a devotional. First of all, devotionals are vitamins. They're not the meal. It's a supplement. So don't do that in addition to your scripture reading. Uh, But it's a great devotional that you would just be able to stay gospel-centered in your entire life. So go check that out when you get done. Uh, Now, last week, 
uh, we begin to ask you to how to fight for the gospel in your homes. That if we're going to have kids, and if we're going to be a church that raises up the next generation of kids that love Jesus with their hearts and obey him with their hands, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight for mamas and daddies at the home to gather the kids together, do family worship together, to pray, read, sing together, uh, to commit to the gathering on Sunday, to commit to being in life groups through the week and men's studies. It's going to be a fight raising up our kids for the next generation that loves the Lord. All right, so today, I flip the switch, and we're going to call you to fight for your city. I'm going to use the word city today, and we can insert whatever you want there. Laverne, Murfreesboro, Nashville, uh, all of those things. You can insert whatever, but we're going to call to fight for the cities that we live in here today. And if we want our cities to flourish where we live, it's going to be a fight. Now, you probably noticed that Christians are more in the margins than in the mainstream of culture, right? We're not dictating culture. We're not in the mainstream. We're not trending on Twitter. No one's calling me uh, to get my Spotify playlist, Right? No one says, hey, what are you doing? Let me, would you speak to sexuality in our school systems? Would you uh, come and talk to us about racial reconciliation? No one's doing that, right? Th- th- that's the culture that we actually live in. We've been pushed out to the margins. We are no longer in the middle of mainstream. Now, it, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't always that way. There was a time where we lived in a Christianized civilization, All right, this really began about A.D. 382, after the death of Christ, when Theodosius of Rome declared Christianity as the official religion of Rome. From that moment forward, um, historians call that period of time Christendom, which means the idea of Christianity and culture in this marriage together, and you got what was called or thought of as a Christianized civilization. We got to be in the mainstream. We were movers. We were shakers. We were influential people in all of society, right? But we know that that is not the day that we live in today. I mean, you can even think back 100 years ago, which really, Christendom really flourished all the way to about 100 years ago, when you think about Sundays where, uh, where businesses would shut down, right? It, I'm not, we're not working on the Lord's day. Shut it down, right? Now today, Chick-fil-A is the only place that shuts down on Sunday pretty much. Back then, if you didn't go to church on Sunday, you were considered one of the heathens, right? This was the Christianized society. Uh, you could, you, pastors could walk in and pray a prayer at a school. The schools would call us and say, hey, man, what's going on? You would go to the football games, and there would be a Jesus-honoring prayer in the society. Uh, politicians and the church, they were really working really well together. But that's not where it is today. We today will be accused of bigotry. These things, if we did them, they would be deemed intolerant. And they would probably lead to lawsuits. And we would be accused of a lot of things that the very Constitution was supposed to protect us from just a few years ago. So we no longer live in a Christian society. Point is, is if you're following Jesus today, you probably... Or should feel like an outcast in many ways. You see, we are both citizens and strangers. But we've been here before. 
This is not new to the Lord. Jeremiah 29 today is going to speak to us and tell us how we are to live as elect exiles in a world, a city that doesn't honor God. How do Jesus lovers live in an antichrist city is what he's going to tell us how to do this. So let's get our Bibles there, Jeremiah 29. Before we do that, let me, let me pray for us. Lord, we often come into this place very tired, weary from the, the day, from the week of work, distracted, busy, confident, broken down, tired, weary, shameful, whatever the case is, Father. We do that, and oftentimes there is no fight in us, even walking in these doors. We just want sanctuary. We just want rest. And God, all that this place provides that for us. Your church is a house of rest. But God, it is also a place, a base camp for your army to rise up, to fuel up, to feed on your word so that we would be able to engage the fight the other six days a week. Father, speak to us through your prophet Jeremiah. Help us how to interact in a city that doesn't know you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me read this. We're going to go Jeremiah 29. Um, we're going to go 4 through 9. Let me, let me read uh, verse 1 first because it kind of sets a context. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priest, to the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So here's the letter, Jeremiah's letter, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in it, its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. All right, so here we have the people of God. Uh, this is post-Israel um, escape from um, Egypt. God has delivered them out. They went to the wilderness, and then he's given them to the promised land. This was their home. They are, uh, they are they're citizens of the kingdom of heaven here. And then what did they do? They rebel against God. This was the pattern of the Israelites over and over again, as it is the pattern with us every single day, right? And, and this, here's where you find themselves. They disobeyed God. They wandered away. They relapsed. And then God, in retribution, steps in and sends them to be under the rule and reign of an oppressive king, Nebuchadnezzar, and under the yoke of Babylon. 
All right, so he takes these exiles and ships them off to an anti, uh, anti-God city called Babylon. So we have rescue and retribution that's happening here. They're God's people in a very strange land, a strange king. Uh, don't you know that they longed to go home, right? They wanted to go home. So they got there, and there's some false prophets here. We see some towards the end here begin to say, hey, don't settle in. You're not going to be there very long. God's going to deliver you from Babylon, so don't, don't plant roots here in Babylon. Just don't get comfy, right? And Jeremiah says, no, no, no. They're all lying to you. They're not prophesying in my name. You better settle in. In fact, you're going to be here for 70 years How are you going to function 70 years in an anti-God world when you say that you love God? Jeremiah's words to these Judaites here in Babylon are very fitting because they're also very applicable to me and to you because you and I live in very Babylon-like cities. All right, this is us, all right? Uh, Jeremiah answered the question, Let me show you how we can relate to these exiles here. Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. says, Christian, this is not your city. In fact, you don't really have a city. Your city is not of this world. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners... And exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're an exile, you're an alien, you're a stranger, you're a sojourner. This is not your home. Don't get really comfortable here from that standpoint. Always know that there's a future kingdom, a heavenly place that you will dwell with forever. But what do you do in the here and the now? How do we reconcile this citizens and strangers dance that we kind of go back and forth with one another. Christians typically respond in a few different ways. First, a few ways of error, and then we'll see what Jeremiah says. Some Christians respond in this culture by simply ignoring the city. Meaning, you just literally live in the city, you have residences in the city, you shop in the city, you eat in the city, you go to the ballparks in the city, you just put your head down and you get all of the benefits of the city, but you don't engage and impact the city. Head down mentality, it's just not there, I just want to do my thing, I want to go work, I want to go home, I want to pull in the driveway and get in the garage and not look at my neighbors. I just want to ignore that I live in the city. And that's clearly a grievous error here. The second mistake that we Christians can make is imitating the city. Imitating the city. See, Babylon here and Nebuchadnezzar had this sick way of taking the people of God and then they would get them into the city and they would literally strategically place them in positions of influence over people and they would integrate them into society so much that they would begin to forget who they were. They got secularized. 
And this is what Jeremiah is cautioning me and you to do. Don't become like the city. Don't, don't think that just because we go to church on Sunday and slap a bumper sticker of a fish on the back of our car, don't think that that allows us to go outside and invade the culture and just become just like them. The deal is here, you think... I think we can, we can lie to ourselves or deceive ourselves in thinking that we can become so influential if we go out there and we be like them in the city. You won't. You'll lose influence. You'll lose influence. And it is better to be divided by truth with the city than it is to be united in error with the city. Plus, that's not what our city needs from us. Our city does not need cool, hip Christians saturated in culture. That's not what they need. What they need from us is to see Jesus. They need to see the look on his face. They need to hear the tone of his voice. And they need to feel the touch of his hand. That's what the city needs. And that's what you and me are to the city. Don't imitate the city. Smell of the sweet aroma of Christ when we engage our culture. The third group of people in error fight the city. Oh, they're just, man, they're so far from God. There's no way they'll ever. They sit back like Jonah when he comes to Nineveh and he's just praying that they would just all, God would just send them to hell, bring judgment on those people, right? And then those people just disengage. They build up these walls around their life to protect them and insulate them from the culture. If we could just put our head down and do church really safely, and not engage in all these people polluting us. Maybe they want to build a compound of just Christians only world. Jeremiah says, no, no, no. You don't fight against them. In fact, you're going to pray for the welfare of the city. The fourth and right response is what Jeremiah says here to do. Seek the welfare of the city. So that in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In that, what he means is when your city flourishes, you will flourish. When things are going well with your city, things will go well with you. He's tying the welfare of the city to your personal welfare. What does that look like? He begins to unpack what seeking the welfare of the city, in fact, looks like. He starts listing out some of those, right? What does he say? He says to build houses, plant gardens, get jobs, get wives, have kids, multiply, don't decrease. Here's basically what he means. He means resume life. Bloom where you're planted right now. Don't look for the later. Dig in. Build houses. Get into the neighborhoods. Have children, it says. 
Get involved in the businesses in your local community. Invest in the city. Now, what does that look like on the street level of seeking the welfare of the city? Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, for me personally, uh, for me and my family, uh, my, I've got three kids that have spent some time living over at the Weary Housing Community in Smyrna. Um, that's a city-represented thing, and they spent some time over there doing some things. Um, I've got, my wife goes over there a couple times a month to teach and help kids with ESL classes and things like that. I've got, I've got a son, my, my son Rylan. Um, he, I'm super proud of him. He, he got involved in coaching a baseball team in Smyrna Youth League. He's got no dogs in the hunt. He's just out there helping coach. He's involved in the city. I know there's some other coaches um, in the room in the congregation that also do some of those things. They get involved in the city. We have people that are involved in the politics. We had a judge in the first hour. We have people that are uh, police officers that serve the city. Uh, There are people that get involved in the PTOs at their schools to get involved in the city. And listen, yes, I know how dangerous those PTOs are. I get it. What We can ignore it. We can imitate it, no, (laughs) or we can fight against it and not even be a part of it. Jeremiah says, no, get involved in it. Get involved in it. What else does it look like to fight for the welfare of the city? Man, it means being good, reputable neighbors. Like, how are you known on your street? Are you the head down, high fence up, pulling your driveway, don't talk to you neighbors? That's not fighting for your city. It's just saying, I want to do away with it. Are you the argumentative person in your neighborhood? Are you the one that will go postal on Facebook and just rip everybody because you got ketchup on your burger at McDonald's? Is that, is that how you're known? That's not. That's not the way we impact our city. We become people of high character, nobility, good morality, honest people in our city. We get involved. Maybe it is in politics. We set up businesses, we build businesses, we build houses. We integrate the city in order to impact the city. We also get involved in the social welfare of the city. The orphans, the homeless, the refugees. We do a lot of global missions. We do a lot of local missions as well. We do, we have partners with all those things locally. Surf through the app sometimes, go through local sending you'll see ways that you can actually seek the welfare of your city. These are ways that we fight and seek the welfare. Now, the reason we do these things, we don't engage the city and feed the homeless and do all these things involved so that we can be seen by others. What does Matthew say? That we serve and we do all of these good deeds so that we let our light shine before men so that others would see our good deeds and see our Father. Here's what that means. As we're in the city and we're infiltrating all of these areas and spheres we just talked about, schools and works, that people would look at us and they wouldn't see us. The people would see us but not see us. They would look beyond and they would see the goodness of God in us. So when you're deed doing and you're seeking of the welfare of the city, don't be a glory hog. Don't go around telling people what you do. And if someone praises your name for what you're doing, you quickly turn that praise unto the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's how your Father gets glory in your good deeds. I think another one of the ways that, that we can help grasp and embrace the fight for the city is knowing that a sovereign God who orchestrates sovereign over every single thing in the world, from a leaf blowing to a hurricane, that same sovereign God who holds the sky has taken you in his hand and he's very strategically, purposefully placed you down into the city that you live in today. You're not here because of the luck of the draw. You're not here because of the good school systems and you decide to pack up and move to Smyrna, Laverne, Murfreesboro. You're not here because of some unforeseen circumstance that got you here. So we don't believe in that. Our theology says that God is sovereign over everything and he has decreed where you live and appointed every day of your life. See, that's what the thing is here with the story of Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar, he thought that it was his power and his authority and his might that got the exiles in Babylon. The text clearly says God put them right there in Babylon exactly where he wanted them. Same way he put Joseph, Egypt, story goes on and on and on. God has decreed where we live and determine our days. Look at Acts 17, so I'm not making this up for you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So here's the theology of God right there. We just heard it. Now, what's the result of that? And he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Luke said that the God who made the heavens, the earth, the stars, the moon, that same God before the foundation of the world determined where you would live and how long you would live on this earth. You may not understand that. You may not fully grasp that. But the word is the word. You see, that helps us embrace our responsibilities and our roles in our cities. We know God has put us on the earth for our good and for his glory. So what is the main way? Because I've listed off, I think Jeremiah's done this. He's listed off a lot of ways that we can help with our cities, right? We can get in, be movers and shakers, and build houses and relationships and kind of do all these logistical things. Here's the most important thing that we need to fight for in the welfare of our city. People need life in Jesus. That is the most important thing that our city needs because they are anti-Christ, so that means their greatest need is Christ. Sharing the gospel with them. That's their greatest need. Don't ever, ever get that uh, confused. All of our hands doing relationships and friendships that we build. That's all great, but it ain't primary. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is why you are here in the here and the now. Now, we started this series a few weeks ago by asking you and challenging you to share the gospel with one person in this season. 
one person in your city, who is it? This is how you seek the welfare of your city, is by sharing the gospel with one person in your city. Who is your one? Are you just ignoring that? I'm just so busy. I'll ignore the fact that people out there really need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or are you too busy imitating the culture so much that you blended in so well and camouflage yourself that you can't even see the people that need Jesus? Or, or you have such a cynical heart and you're so fighting against the people outside that you don't care anything about saving them. You're just praying for God's judgment on them. Woe to us if that's our mindset. Does your heart break for lost people? If it doesn't, and you don't care about the one out there, there's probably a good chance that your name is either on that board or should be on that board. One of the marks of a disciple of Jesus is a burden for lost people. To care about their eternal salvation. Who is your one? Please, man, move. If you don't have that conviction, man, pray for it. Pray God give you a burden to weep for the lost people. Go to that board on the way out today. Take that sticker out by the table. Write their name down. Personalize that God would put that name not only on the sticker, but would put it on your heart and on your mind every day and he would provide you with the power to share the gospel. So that's primary. It's the primary way that we serve and seek the welfare of our city. Now I'm going to turn the page just a little bit to talk about another way that we seek the welfare of our city by addressing the aches of our city. The aches of our city. The things in our culture, in our city today, that are very pertinent, that are calling... Rivers of tears being cried every single day. Families, children weeping over the destruction of these aches of our city. And we need to fight these. The first one of these aches is porn. Sex is God's good gift, his good design. For a married couple... Husband and wife, for the intimacy of two, not the intensity of one. Smyrna, Laverne, Murfreesboro, by biblical standards, would be considered Corinthian to the core. Our cities sweat sinful sexual pleasures all day long. Pornotopia is where we live, and we need to get real. We need to stop hiding from it, stop talking, not talking about it in church, just hope it goes away. That clearly hasn't gone well for the church, right? If we have young children present, you're like, I don't want my kids. No, you better want your kids to hear this. Don't wait till they're 10, because they've probably already been exposed to it. Porn is killing the church. It's killing marriages. 
It's killing intimacy in your marriage. It's destroying families. Character. It lies to you. Porn put Jesus on the cross. As he died on the cross, he's dying for porn. To pay the penalty of our porn. Sin lies. The Satan gets in our ears and says, it's free. It won't cost you anything. No one's looking. Look, but don't touch. Lies, lies, lies. It will cost you everything. It will cost you your marriage. It will cost you intimacy. It will cost you your effectiveness as a church member. As a missionary of God, it will take you out of the game. It will cost you your joy. It will cost you the abundant life that Jesus wants for you. And we need to be a people that hate porn and love Jesus. You see, that's how you drive porn out. Yes, you flank with filters and safeguards on devices. That's flanking. That's not the primary attack. The primary attack is to love Jesus and hate porn. That's where we go. This Eric Simmons wrote this. He's a lead pastor at Redeemer Church in Washington, D.C., and he wrote these reasons why he hates porn and loves Jesus. Listen to what he said. Porn is like a narcotic. It hijacks the brain. It redefines human sexuality, and in the meantime, it ruins lives, destroys families, destabilizes ministries. Tired of the devastation Satan is causing to children, Women, families, pastors, churches, and the world with this tragic evil. I hate porn because porn is a perversion of what God created in man and woman. I hate porn because it exploits women made in the image of God into an image that for man's lust. I hate porn because I love women. I hate porn because it turns sons and daughters of God into slaves of sex. I hate porn because it turns potential missionaries into impotent Christians. I hate porn because it destroys marriages, many before they even begin. I hate porn because it keeps men little boys. I hate porn because it lies to me about the beauty and leads men to look for a porn star instead of a woman who fears the Lord. I hate porn because it fractures trust between husbands and wives. I hate porn because it leads to disqualified pastors and impotent churches. I hate porn because it teaches a distorted view of sex to kids. I hate porn because it says sin is more desirable than Jesus. But he goes on to say he loves Jesus. I love Jesus because he loves people with porn problems. He loves Jesus because he can free porn-enslaved hearts. He says, I love Jesus because he who knew no porn became porn so that the porn addict can be known for the righteousness of God. Hate, porn, love, Jesus. You don't toy and train with porn. That's how you get worked. It's like training A lion on a leash. We've talked about that before. You know how you train a lion on a leash? You know how that ends up? Devoured. 
kill the sin in your life. Choke it out while you're simultaneously feeding a superior satisfaction that is found in Christ. The second ache of our city is drug addiction. As we came up with the aches of the city, we didn't sit around as an elder team and say, hey, what's some cool things we could talk about? We hear stories about people in our congregation, over 3,000 people. We hear the stories of devastation. We do a lot of counseling, as you can imagine. And if the aches in our church are these things, then you better believe the aches of the city are the very same things. And as I said, drug addiction is one of the aches of the city. There are more scripts in Tennessee than people right now today. I've got some stats here. There's enough scripts for every person in America to have a bottle of pills. 142 Americans die every day from overdose, mostly of the opioids. Leading cause of death under 50. Kills more people than gun violence and car accidents. Upwards of 76% of all kids in foster care are there because of a result of a parental addiction. We think, oh, that's just... uh, convicts and thugs no these are baseball dads and soccer moms grandmas and grandpas popping pills all day now listen I don't have time to completely unpack those that might require medication prescribed medication to calm the effects of a sin marred brain or else in the body But we do know, by and large, these opioids are being abused by our city. And I could prove it because I could go to the doctor tomorrow morning and I could lie right to that doctor's face and tell him that I'm sad and he'll write me a script in five seconds. And so can you. And once that one figures your game out and says no more scripts... You can go to the next doctor, and he'll gladly write you another one. This is killing our city. Educated, the uneducated, rich, the poor, none are immune to the destruction of addiction. The last ache of the city is this. It's to fight the ache of abortion. Before I I, I mention Abortion, I always want to be sensitive to those that might be here. Uh, you, you might have participated or encouraged in an abortion. For those in Christ, there is no condemnation for those in Jesus. If you've done that, it's been paid for on the cross if you believed. But abortion is such an ache in our city. It's such a sensitive topic that I'm going to tell you that if you're a Christian and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be pro-choice. You are either not Christian 
or you're in serious biblical error. Because there's no way that if you set your personal ideas and opinions aside for whatever case, there's no way that if you picked up this Bible that you would not see that life begins at conception in the womb. On September the 11th in 2001, the World Trade Center towers went down in New York City. On that day, over 3,000 people perished, murdered unjustly. We wept that day. You probably remember where you were. Weeping, sadness, confusion for all of the loss of lives, the families, the devastation, the carnage, sad, dark, gloomy day. And it quickly turned into rage, didn't it? A righteous anger. Who's responsible? Let's fight this. Injustice, right? We're shaking our fist. You know what happened? On September the 12th, 2001, 3,600 babies were slaughtered in abortion mills. Not a word. You know what happened on September the 13th? Another 3,000 babies slaughtered. September the 14th, another 3,000 babies were slaughtered. And every day since, 3,000 a day, that's 25,000 something a week of babies being slaughtered and killed Over 40 million unborn killed since the Roe versus Wade decision was handed down. Do we ache the way we ached when the towers went down? Do we have a righteous anger in us when we see the injustice of abortion? I pray that we waken ourselves up to it. I pray that we wouldn't ignore it. We wouldn't imitate it, that we would actually fight for the welfare of our city and get involved in these things. Now, I want to give you, as we close this and land this, I want to give you some practical ways of how you can get on the ground at street level and begin to fight for the welfare of our city. All right. Today, we have local ministry partners present in the lobby. I'm going to tell you who they are, and then also tell you that you can find these on the app as well. Uh, Today, there's Operation Saving Lives. We brought Scott Horde in several months ago. Um, We talked to you about what we're going to do. Let me show you this uh, mobile ultrasound unit. Maybe they'll find it here in a minute. Here we go. So this is a mobile ultrasound unit. And what they do down at the abortion clinics is this, is that they set up these mobile ultrasound in the unit. When the ladies or women come in, of families, young couples, whatever, they come in to get an abortion or to see about getting an abortion, the people on the ground there at Operation Saving Life pull them in and say, hey, we can show you a picture of your unborn baby on an ultrasound. And when they do that, when they can woo someone into the unit, and they see their baby, I believe Scott said upwards of maybe 88% of the people turn around and go home 
and they give birth to their children. You see, we gave. We asked you to give to this. This is one of the ways that you can do that, not only by giving, but that you can get on the ground and go down there in the trenches with them that day, lovingly try to woo people into the ultrasound unit. Hey, let me show you something. You're going to love this. It's your baby, right? Not condemnation, not judgment, but let me show you where life is in your womb right now. Maybe that's where you want to go. Maybe that's where the Lord's stirring you up. Maybe it's through a, a group called Spring to Life, an addiction recovery group. Jonathan Ryan is a guy who's out there. I know this guy. I love this guy. Great story, brother of Joey Ryan here. Um, and he's, he's going to be down there today in the table. And they're fighting for addiction, men addiction to things. If it's, if it's uh, medication, if it's drugs, pornography, that's what their group does. There's people sitting there. There's other groups sitting around, uh, adoption ministry, support care for uh, these orphans and these babies when they're born. A lot of times there's no moms and dads. So how do we get involved in those things in the aches of our city? They'll all be in the lobby today. Walk around, ask, get in the trenches. On your app that you have, that's your LifePoint app, there are on the homepage a thing called support groups. Maybe this is an ache that's in your own heart as well as the city, and you need help. Go to the support page. Ask for help. Reach out today. Stop out. Come over to the right. Just whisper to me. Send me a message this week if you feel a little bit more comfortable doing that. We want to help you fight the aches in your heart as well as in the city. Let's pray that God moves us in this time, all right? So let's do this. Lord, this has been weighty today. This has been thick and heavy and sensitive and personal. And uh, Father, I think at that place when we can dial our hearts into what you are sensing and you are feeling in your city, God, I believe that we sense and can align with you in a greater way. God, would you heal the brokenhearted today? Would you uh, exalt the, the humble? Would you let the one who feels shame or condemnation feel your warm embrace? God, would you bring a spirit of conviction on us? And then, God, by your spirit, would you empower us to go and fight for our city? In Jesus' name, amen.